Welcome to Jump by Design. I'm David Pachter. We're a show about accelerating achievement for leaders looking to excel through the struggle. As we know, learning and growth come outside of the comfort zone and more frequently when you're still in the fight. We have Dave Kirpin with us. He's a serial entrepreneur, New York Times bestselling author and keynote speaker. He's the founder and CEO of Likeable Local, a social media software company serving thousands of small businesses. And he's also the co-founder of Likeable Media, an award-winning social marketing agency for bigger brands. Dave is the author of The Art of People, 11 Simple People Skills That Will Get You Everything You Want. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that, some interesting things to know about Dave. He is a very comfortable guy putting himself out there in the public eye. He had a sponsored wedding that we'll talk a little bit about, and he was also a contestant on Fox's 2003 reality television series, Paradise Hotel. Welcome, Dave Kirpin. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Cool. We also have today Jared Carroll. Jared works right at the intersection of storytelling, purpose, and inclusion. He helps people transform their perspective to optimize their potential. His company is called Storytelling for Good, and he works to transform emerging leaders into purpose-driven leaders. He's an expert at helping people articulate their personal narratives and connecting it to their professional ones. He's open to sharing anything and everything personal or professional. He believes we make, when we make ourselves vulnerable, we build trust, deeper connections, and change the world for the better. Welcome, Jared Carroll, to the show. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Cool. Jared, if we wanted to go deep quick and learn about what Jared Carroll, and what inspired Jared Carroll to become a purpose-driven leader and really dedicate his career to doing it for others? What, what should we know about you? Yeah, well, so uh, let me tell you, I've got, um, when I was 20 years old, I was sitting in Boulder, Colorado. I was camping with a, a very good friend of mine, a, a woman named Amy. And Amy and I were best friends since, since freshman year in high school. So we get along very well. Um, type of person I could tell anything to. But this night I'm a little, I'm a little nervous because I have something to, to share with her. Um, and she notices, she says, dude, you're kind of being weird. I said, oh no, everything's cool. And I'm kind of trying to brush it off. And she says, I don't know, this isn't, this isn't like you. You know, we don't, we don't kind of behave this way around each other. She was kind of calling me out. So finally, um, after a couple more beers, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't lie any longer. And I said, Amy, I have to tell you something. And I was worried that it was going to change our relationship, um, kind of take it in a different direction. And she says, it's okay. You can tell me anything. What do you got to tell me? And I said, well, Amy, um, my dad's gay. Well, and, and the reason that I took so long to tell her that was because my dad had told me I was gay when I was a freshman in high school, not too long after I had met Amy. And it was 1988 and I was living in the conservative suburbs of, of San Diego and you know, Reagan was still president and I didn't have any sense of diversity or inclusion or, or multicultural perspective. Any of that was not part of my world. So when I learned this from my dad who lived in San Francisco, uh, it, it just shocked me and I didn't know what to do. I was confused, embarrassed, ashamed. And so I kind of went through high school, uh, you know, just with the secret. And I didn't share it with anyone, Amy or, or any of my other good friends. And I kind of had geographical safety because my dad lived in San Francisco and I lived in San Diego so I could get away with not telling anyone but it was just kept gnawing at me and I knew it wasn't right so finally you know five and a half years later I tell Amy and, and you know what she said she said big deal 
<laughs> so was that the moment you realized that you, know, you could turn this element of your own family history, your family narrative into a, a personal motivating factor it, and force for it, you? Exactly. That's exactly the moment. It was the most pivotal moment uh, really in my life because it, it opened me up to, you know, that I was holding this, this BS kind of story um, inside me and I wasn't open to the possibilities because of fear and, you know, just all kinds of limiting beliefs. And so once I got this kind of affirmation from one, from one of my good friends, it kind of, kind of made me realize like, what have I been doing? And so since then, my whole life has been about, you know, from my personal journey and in my work helping, you know, clients with their story um, around understanding what are those limiting beliefs and how do we find uh, breakthrough beliefs that open us up to, uh, you know, to deeper connections, to building trust with people, to greater possibilities for ourselves and, and others. So it sounds like a lot of that work turns out to be about exploring what people might perceive to be liabilities and turning them into strengths. Dave Kirpin, on, on the other hand, went uh, and started his career really in the public eye, Dave. And then you, you really made a jump to leverage the work that you did in the public eye for your, for your business life. Can you talk about that inflection point and then, you know, give us a little background on, on Dave Kirpin of uh, 2003, 2004. Sure. So, um, you know, actually my first experience with the public life, I guess, goes all the, even further back to uh, college. So uh, I was studying education and wanted to be a teacher, but I took a job working uh, at Boston Fenway Park in the Boston Garden uh, selling, um, selling uh, uh, as a vendor, you know, the, the guys that go up and down the aisle selling, selling food. Hot dogs. And, you know, yeah, exactly. But it's a, actually a seniority-based system. So what you may not know is that you got to work for years to sell the hot dogs or the beer. <laughs> um, you, uh, literally, my first day, I sold the, the worst-selling product in the building uh, called Crunch and Munch, buttery toffee popcorn with peanuts. <laughs> and I sold six boxes and I got paid the legal minimum. And so I, ca I came back the second day thinking, you know, it's fun to be at the ballpark, but I, I'd like to actually make some real money here. And so I ended up putting together a little shtick, um, singing, dancing, juggling boxes. And um, I really had no talent, but, but, but the only talent I had, I guess, was the uh, fearlessness and the, the willingness to actually put myself out there. And so, um, you know, within several weeks, uh, I guess I created a, quite a buzz and got some local media and sort of became known as the crunch and munch guy. And um, <laughs> it wasn't long before uh, people, uh, uh, started asking me for autographs. And actually the one, the one smart thing I did, um, the, on the first night that somebody asked me for an autograph, I, I took, I asked if I could borrow their Sharpie for the whole night. And I proceeded to sign every box of Cruncher Munch that I sold unsolicited. And, um, I, I was able to actually create the perception in the building in just one night that not only did you need to buy a box of Cruncher Munch from the Cruncher Munch guy, but you need to get it signed. And, um, that kind of sort of like, that was my first experience with, um, I guess being out in the public eye and sort of crafting an image and crafting a story. Um, and yes, you know, the, the rest is history. Uh, as, as you, you know, you made mention of my wedding, of course, a couple of year, a few years later. Uh, well, actually you also mentioned the reality show in 2003. I was sort of really out there again on, on Paradise Hotel. And, um, you know, that was, um, that was a really interesting experience. I was the, I was the subject of a story and I, I, I sort of learned how to, um, that my role, the more important role in more important than sort of playing the game with the other contestants on the show, uh, was 
playing the game with the producers in helping them tell the best story possible. <laughs> and, and so, so by, by providing them with the sort of storyline that I knew would resonate with the audience, I was able to stay until the end and, and, and really sort of um, get the most out of that experience. And then, yeah, years later I got married at a baseball stadium and we sold sponsorships for the wedding and we ended up, you know, you know, generating about a hundred thousand dollars in sponsorships to cover the cost of a pretty amazing wedding in front of 8,000 people and 500 friends and family. So yeah, those first three, I guess, major run-ins with the sort of public life and um, sort of being a little larger than life and telling that, that pub story very publicly were, were um, really valuable and, and sort of key moments in my career. doing here at Jump by Design is sharing real-life experiences that provide you with ideas and tips on how to accelerate your success and achieve your goals. Like our sponsor, The Jump Crew, we're in constant pursuit of being our best self and driving the best result. Jump Crew helps their clients achieve business success with proven marketing and sales execution combined with a passionate team of achievers. If you are recently funded or have a mature business that needs revenue growth, I recommend you speak with them. Jump Crew can transform your business with integrated demand generation and sales support, accelerate your growth, and take the risk out of doing it yourself. You made a reference, Dave, to playing the game, which I want to tie into some of your narrative because, you know, really, you started out with something fairly mundane, selling the crunch and munch. You turned it into something special. You found a way to put the story on it, right? To, to put a, wrap a story around it and parlay it into something uh, much bigger than it, than it might have been at the moment. So when you think about storytelling, how did it play into your jump into entrepreneurship? And this is actually a question I would love to hear uh, from, from both of you guys, how storytelling, how you think it plays into entrepreneurship? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's funny, I, I, I was uh, just, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, thinking about this right before the, the podcast, how, uh, and actually I was commenting on Jared's post uh, that um, nobody likes to be sold to. Uh, yeah, but in entrepreneurship and in life, you have to sell to succeed. I mean, and anyone that thinks that they don't have to be a salesperson is, is sort of uh, missing the point. So uh, you have to sell to succeed uh, as an entrepreneur, but, and yet nobody likes to be sold to. So what I always default to is that while nobody likes to be sold to, everybody likes a great story. And so sure. if you can craft that great story for people, a story that really resonates, and if you can actually think more like a producer, director, um, author that's, that's telling a story than like an entrepreneur, sales guy, you know, sort of schlepper, then then you're going to be able to craft a story that's going to resonate with people the same way people sit down for two hours to watch a movie because it, there's a compelling narrative, a compelling story. And I've had you know, the same for some of those people, too. yeah, yeah. Sorry, for some of those people, it's gonna yeah. you're going to be able to really you know uh, resonate and build a business. So, Jared, when you're coaching mm -hmm. and you're helping people craft that story, how does it play into their ability not just to necessarily uh, be entrepreneurs, but to think entrepreneurially. To, to, uh, I'm, this is a great question. Um, in fact, right before this call, I had a, I was working with a client just on this very topic. He he actually works for a company now, but he's just he's kind of an entrepreneur. I would say he's been a contractor. He's in the recruiting business. Um, 
and he and he's working with a company now, but he's thinking, you know, maybe I'll kind of move on and kind of, you know, see what I can do. And so what we were working on is having him uh, think in narrative. So we've collected a bunch of anecdotes um, over his, you know, some from when he was a little kid, some from last week, and, and really think that um, when whatever the conversation you're having, whether it's, um, you know, as, as David said, like kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, in, in an entrepreneur, you know, selling or kind of pitch your products or your services or trying to get a client or, you know, or it's just a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a colleague, People respond to stories more than they respond to to data, uh, or, or you know, if you can couch whatever the messages that you're trying to share in a, a personal, um, vulnerable, anecdotal uh, story of that of your own, it's going to be much more powerful because. The, the biggest challenge I have with my clients and the, and the biggest breakthrough when they realize it is that th people often think that talking about themselves, telling, you know, putting themselves in the story is egotistical, is narcissistic, is um, beside the point, is, you know, it's not about me, it's about them. It's, um, and so they, they default to this kind of boilerplate general thing because they don't want to include themselves. And so what I help them do is say, yes, it can be egotistical it can be narcissistic if if you if you're not careful but if you really look at um the connection and and the um the trust you're going to build by putting yourself in the story it's going to be much more powerful if your purpose is to serve and connect you know from an entrepreneurial perspective like what i have to offer is really valuable and i want to serve you um with this insight this product this service this uh you know um, advice that I'm giving, putting yourself in the story makes you much more believable, much more trustworthy. Why do you think it's such? It's so hard for people? Why do you think it's such a roadblock? I struggled with it myself. I moved to New York. I have a mentor to this day, and he gave me a great opportunity coming out of the film business in Los Angeles, and we were uh, selling IT staffing and temporary staffing in New York, and he forced me to put myself my own personal story in every every call we went on with clients and prospects and I hated him for it for the first six months. But, you know, yeah. but it got to a point where I was really able to connect the dots between the insight of my struggles making feature films, which people love hearing about, uh, and the value that I could bring with uh, the, the trust that people could have in me delivering a product around technology services. Yeah. Well, I think it's one word. Uh, I think it's fear. <laughs> right. And, and, and fear can mean like, you know, you know, like fear for your physical safety or fear of being vulnerable, of putting yourself out there. And part of related to that, to give people a little bit of a, of a break on it is it's not like, hey, just, you know, stop being a wuss and go out and do it. It's it's giving them tools and frameworks to to actually practice it and understand how to do it. So someone like me, I mean, I was a writing teacher. I've written and, you know, worked with students for you know, for decades. So I, I'm, and I'm a musician. So I'm used to being on stage in front of people telling stories, you know, sharing ideas. It's, it's no, no big deal. So, but I know not everyone has that. And so it's kind of a two part thing. Um, it's the inner work of understanding your story. And then it's the outer work of, okay, how do we articulate these stories, this narrative arc in these different contexts, whatever, whatever the you know, particular context is for someone. So it's getting over that fear, that limiting belief, as I talked about in the in the beginning, and then giving them clear tools and frameworks to start working on it if they're especially if they're new to it. And then it's like then it just becomes a second nature to kind of build that muscle type of thing. Dave Kirpin, it seemed like it came so natural to you. Did it take 
effort or did it come natural to you? Yeah, I, I don't have a lot of skills um, and certainly I don't have a lot of talents, but one thing I have been fortunately very good at is sort of like um, being myself and um, be in sharing and just sort of like putting myself out there. And I think that's, you know, just like Jared said, a lot of people are afraid, um, afraid of, of looking stupid, afraid of, of being judged, afraid of failing. And, you know, that, that you, all, those, all those fears are tapped into when, when people are asked to share their, their, their personal story or asked to really be authentic or, dare I say, even vulnerable. I mean, I, one of the things that I think I have found is most successful in my storytelling and in my selling and sort of uh, putting myself out there and I, I sort of put that all hand in hand is, is vulnerability. Uh, I have a chapter in, um, in uh, my, my most recent book, The Art of People, called Crying is for Winners uh, because I think we're all, we're all taught at a young age um, don't cry. Like that's when, when, when kids cry, they're, they're literally told don't cry, right? Especially boys um, who become men. And, uh, and yet it's vulnerability that is most compelling, um, to folks. Um, I, I had a, I had a, uh, I have a monthly celebrity dinner party. Actually, I have to have you out at some point, David, but I have a monthly celebrity dinner party. And just last night I had, uh, a guy worth about $90 million, uh, at my dinner table and crying. we're going around the room and we say, we say some introductions and he cried and it was unbelievable. Not only did it endear him to, uh, the rest of the audience, but it set a, uh, the, it set the stage for frankly, uh, other people, uh, to cry and to share wow. their story in a really powerful, meaningful way. And, you know, isn't it, isn't it better? I mean, yeah, yes. I sort of opened by sharing a few of my kind of larger than life stories, but, um, it's even more compelling for me to share, you know, my story of being in love with a married woman and not being able to, you know, uh, uh, get her to leave her husband for me or my story about, you know, my father and his, his chronic bipolar disorder and struggling with mental illness in my family for so many years that the, when we can really be vulnerable, that story appeals even more to people. But let's have a coaching moment. Dave, for you, you have account executives who are dealing with big brands. You have folks on your team that are working with small businesses. You can't coach them to cry on the phone. What, what, how, are you, how are you coaching your, your guys on your team to become more accessible, more vulnerable, to develop better relationships with their clients? Yeah, so I think it starts with listening, which is sort of the opposite of what we've been talking about in terms of storytelling. But I think listening is really, really important because by listening to the other person on the other end of the phone, the other uh, end of the uh, conversation, uh, when you're face to face, et cetera, you can pay attention to their story and you can find most important kind of common ground with your story and theirs. And so the better you listen and pay attention to the other person, their story, their pain points the better you can then turn around and craft uh, a story that's going to really resonate and, and, and be authentic, but, but resonate in a, in, a more, in a most powerful way. Thanks for listening in. I hope you enjoyed the episode and tune in next time for more Jump by Design. We love feedback at Jump by Design. Come to the website, jumpbydesign.com or get me on Twitter at David Pachter. Thanks for tuning in.